0: Welcome to Communicate Like You Give a Damn, the podcast. Our guests share their stories and approaches to embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion in communications because, I mean, let's be honest, we know the power of language. And language leads to behavior. So thank you. Thank you for joining us in leveling up your communications. I'm your host, Kim Clark. And DEI Communications, it's kind of my thing. So let's get into it. Let's learn more about how to communicate like you give a damn. Welcome back. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. This is going to be a really interesting conversation. Well, I have to say that all of the podcasts are interesting conversations. This one is coming from uh, someone else who's representing just north of the United States in Canada, uh, Elizabeth. And I met Elizabeth, let me give you a little context here, back in 2020 uh, when COVID hit, before the murder of George Floyd, when COVID hit and internal communicators were thrust into basically similar frontline experiences where they had to have the answers and have a plan and uh, really be in... The mix of making major decisions for employees on how businesses will would run. Um, I saw so many of my peers of of my clients uh, get so burned out. They were so tired. They were exhausted. They needed support because they had the not only that going on from a professional standpoint, and internal communications is notoriously under resourced and underfunded, and to be thrust in such a critical position without (laughs) all of of what they need, and nobody could foresee um, what a global pandemic would mean to many organizations today. Not many crisis communication playbooks would include a global uh, pandemic at this level, at this uh, impact, impact But they had the personal stuff going on where they were afraid for their own families, for their own safety, for their employees, their teams. How do you manage through that? So I was watching this happen and I, some of my clients were going into surgery because they were just, the stress level was so insane. And so I uh, put together an internal communication support group, basically, and I just wanted to pull people together as a place where we could learn what each other's doing but at the same time just be present with each other and help people know that they're not alone and that they they can be in a room a virtual room with people who get it who understand who are there and have been there um and so there was just this community that we needed to build and so over a hundred people Uh, started out. And then there was this core group that just kept showing up every Friday morning. And (laughs) Elizabeth was a part of that core group, and we just kept it going. And I was kind of writing my portion of the conscious communicator while I was in this group. And that was spurred on by the murder of George Floyd. And all the black boxes that communicators were posting on social media and making these commitments and putting them on blogs and websites and internal, um, you know, communications and emails that were going out. And so we would meet on a on a weekly basis, and I was constantly bringing forth things that we needed to be doing to show up in this way, uh, not only in COVID but now with the. The racial reckoning that was begging for uh, reconciliation, and so we were navigating that as an as a as a comms group throughout the time. It ended up going. I thought it would be a few months, right, Elizabeth, and it <laughs> ended up going a year. And yeah. the group still meets without yeah. me. They have a group yeah. chat. I and I just learned about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we've kind of massaged it into the book club. Um, there's so many people who read the book and come now at the end of every month and join the book club. And we talk about the book, but it's also this community, the continuation of the community. And there's a, a lot of the original group. That's the OG. When I say OG, the original group uh, that that met in 2020 is part of the book club as well. And so many more new faces that are here with us uh, because of the group because of the the book and because of the community. So that's the context of how I met Elizabeth, and she has done a testimonial in the book. I thank you for that. And so introduce yourself so people can kind of get an understanding of what your personal and professional experience and path has been.
1: Sure. Thanks, Kim. I always get goosebumps when when we talk about that because that was such an important piece of, my journey and, and you've been such an important piece of my journey. It's so bizarre that we've never met until this year, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, to know somebody that's been so impactful in your life. But um, yeah, so I'm Elizabeth Bunny. I'm a third generation uh, Métis citizen here in Edmonton, Alberta, which is Treaty 6 territory in Canada. Um, My great grandmother was Cree and my great grandfather on my mother's side was Polish. And so that's why I'm considered Métis on that side of Things My great grandmother took script in order to marry uh, my great grandfather, which means she gave up her treaty rights and her treaty status um, and the promise of a better life. And so um, I'm pretty white presenting. And so it's, you know, the rest of my mom's side of the family is quite dark, mo- more indigenous looking than I am. And so it's interesting sometimes when you tell people that you're Métis, people kind of question, they look at you, like, oh "Oh, skin color. And it's, I, I say often I haven't thought so much about skin color as I have my own skin color as I have the past year, you know, really connecting with my identity and, and figuring out where my place is and you know, in my indigenous history. So, yeah. Um, I live in Edmonton. I have two adult sons. They're 26 and almost 20. Um, One of them is a graphic designer, and uh, it's just so amazing to be connected to him in a career that's so complimentary to what I do as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I don't know. That's about me. Um, I've been in the profession for about 18 years. I have experience in external comms, internal comms, uh, marketing comms as well. Um, I have just, I'm the past president of the IBC Edmonton chapter, which is the second largest chapter of business communicators in the world. Um, Nice to say past president and be able to take a little bit of a break from that. Um, But really that's, uh, our chapter was almost 400 members strong in Edmonton. And and, uh, we have a really thriving community here of communicators. Yeah, that's me.
0: And one of the things that I really appreciate is that when we did connect in 2020, you immediately wanted to bring this conversation to your IABC Edmonton chapter, and so I came in. But you didn't stop there; you actually partnered with other Canadian IABC chapters, right? I don't remember how many, but there was quite the the communion, if you will, of people coming together across Canada, thirsty for this kind of conversation yeah. and wanting to wanting to know like what do we what do we do what do we do with this how do we handle this and some great conversation came out of that and some great relationships so thank you for thinking for of bringing this to your your folks that you were you know in touch with but also expanding it uh, across Canada
1: yeah for sure well I was just seeing you know people it's, this is work isn't easy. No one has all of the answers, and it's changing daily. And so, who can you lean on for support? And I've always leaned on other communicators. And so, bringing everybody together, I think there were six different chapters in total that we brought together for that. And it was the largest attended PD session that we'd had for IABC. Um, so, thank you for doing that. And people were just hungry.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So uh, there's a really interesting intersection between what you just shared in your introduction. It's your personal experience, the ancestry that you represent kind of like what's going on on the inside and how you see the world. It's part of the lens that you see the world in and then how the world sees you people questioning (laughs) your ancestry, which is (laughs) like, yeah, unbelievably crossing the line but anyway and then what you've done as a professional communicator you actually merged those and started working at a firm well I'll let you tell the story talk about the firm and then the kind of work that you did what kind of clients did you have what kind of work were you asked to do
1: yeah, sure. So um, I left the corporate Canada world um, with the intent of freelancing uh, last year and uh, started working with an indigenous PR firm based out of Edmonton here. And I mean, they, um, the kind of work that they were doing was just really speaking to my connection to my roots, um, the combination of what I was doing as a communicator and just really you know, wanting to do, uh, wanting to do more, knowing that I had a skill set that could really help, uh, you know, a section of, of the population that could really use an amplification of their voice. And so started working at the, at the PR firm and, um, one of the biggest clients, you know, well, I'll just, I'll start with one of the first clients actually that we worked with. Um, it was, uh, an organization here in, Canada that um, has had success overseas with water. Um, they train water operators. It's an organization called Water First. Is that okay if I use names? Is that
0: mm-hmm. yeah? if it's if you think it's okay? I it. <laughs> okay, so it's an organization. Especially called- if it's a nonprofit or somebody you know, an organization that we can all support. I think that's really good to give visibility. Yeah.
1: Okay, absolutely. So it was a wonderful organization called Water First. And what they do is they train um, uh, water operators from indigenous or communities sorry, um, to operate water treatment facilities within their communities. So they train them, they have um, an internship program, and then they you know, send them back to their communities with these skill sets. And they, during the, you know, you may have heard some of the Freedom Convoy stuff that happened last year in Canada. We don't need to rehash that, but they were uh, recipients of a um, Freedom Convoy GoFundMe um, fund that, you know, somebody, what was happening was the Freedom Convoy was trying to attach themselves to a lot of Indigenous issues um, to get exposure and empathy um, for some of those things. So they had a GoFundMe campaign And they received, I think, something like $700,000, a beautiful contribution. But then they started to see that they were being attacked by other organizations and Indigenous communities about the fact that they were collecting all this money, but they were not doing anything to um, further water infrastructure issues. That they were actually just, you know, training water operators and doing water education. And so, you know, that's literally not what they do, but they were struggling as a nonprofit and a small little, you know, I think they had maybe two or three people on their communications team um, struggling, you know, to try and defend themselves and, you know, being attacked. And they weren't, they didn't have the experience with that. So they, a couple months later, so they were still, you know, kind of dealing with the aftermath of that. A couple months later, they were the um, recipient of a major personal donation from Ryan Reynolds and Blake lively from their personal fund, and they were scared um, to do this announcement because of the the kind of backlash that they'd received during the Freedom Convoy. And so they came to us and just were, you know, a couple weeks before the announcement and they said, hey, we're scared. We're worried that this kind of exposure, I mean, this is on a very different level, that this kind of exposure um, is going to open us up to even more um, attacks on what we do could you just have a quick look at our press release? Could you give us some advice? Could you, you know, just look at our plan of what we're doing and just, you know, maybe give us a couple of suggestions of what we could do differently. And one of the first things that I picked up on as soon as I was starting to look through their materials is that their name is actually Water First Education and Training. And I was like, you you very um, seldomly use your first full name or that company full name. You use water first regularly because that's who you talk about yourself. And I said, use that, use that in everything, use your full company name and everything that you're talking about, because people can't, you have less of a chance of people attacking you when they see that you're literally just water first education and training. You don't do infrastructure. So that was the first point. Um, we provided some suggestions to them in terms of, um, how they could you know, structure their press release. And then we also had some input into Ryan Reynolds' quote, actually. And he really wanted to push the infrastructure issue a little bit. He was really interested in pushing the water infrastructure piece, but uh, Water First, such a tiny little nonprofit organization, they weren't, you know, how could they take that on? So what we suggested is, um, his quote was actually, um, clean drinking water is a basic human right. And that's what we used as the headline. That was the headline that was used when the press release was out. That was the headline that was that was grabbed by most of the media outlets. And we had all kinds of different media outlets looking at that, like e-news or you know, some of those entertainment news, things that I've never had exposure to in, in my career. And so um, because of that, they had super positive, I'll just say, because of the advice that we gave them and those few couple of things that we gave them, they had... They had zero issues. They had zero backlash. They had nothing but positive feedback. And whether or not what we did really contribute, like if it would, it might have been okay without us. But as communicators, we know those subtle changes make a huge difference, and and can really steer people in the right direction. Clarity. Yeah, clarity.
0: Clarity can really breed confidence. Without clarity, you may have seen this in in a newsletter that I put out. You know, breeds chaos, and sometimes that's intentional, but you were working on that clarity to breed that confidence and, and, uh you know, and that, that really, you know, that clarity really helps the narrative of just getting people all on the same page. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like Ryan Reynolds also needed to, you know, get a little bit more clarity about what, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what yeah. the work was as well. Yeah. That's a really strong quote. And it's timely that you tell this story because uh, the U.S. Supreme Court recently uh, made a decision against Navajo, the Navajo Nation um, in the United States region, uh, that's uh, restricting water rights and, and not not being able to make that accessible to the Navajo Nation. And here they are already having to deal with um, walking. You know, we hear these stories of Africa walking miles to go get fresh water. Um, and that's happening actually here as well, and so the Navajo Nation is now in, in a in a very difficult uh, place once again where water is delivered in barrels, et cetera. So there's there's more to it than that. Um, we can put that in the show notes for people mm-hmm. to learn more about what the, what's going on there. But water rights and indigenous rights and human rights uh, tying that all together. Yeah. So. You were at this firm when the Pope visited Canada, and so I would love—you've got to have some stories, like (laughs) 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 got to be some stories. Yes. How were you brought in? With what kind of remit? Um, And what were some of the challenges uh, that your clients? Who were your clients? Like, you know, what were your objectives and representing? Uh, your clients, and how are you involved with the Pope's visit? And yeah, you got to tell us, you know, a story or two.
1: Sure. Yeah. So um, the firm that I worked with actually was um, the Confederacy of Treaty 6 was their client and uh, Treaty 6 um, encompasses about 17 nations across Alberta and Saskatchewan here in Canada. And so up until that point, you know, early like i want to say may june of last year before the pope's visit it was kind of like you know we had one or two people kind of on the calls you know just making sure that we were there to represent um treaty six but we were also um just kind of trying to get the lay of the land what does this visit actually look like there was very little information uh coming out of the church coming out of the federal government um about what actually this visit was about. You know, it was pretty muddied. And so trying to get clarity on what that looked like. And so the team was working on that. I was not on the project at the time, um, just because we weren't sure what the resources were going to be. And then it became very, very clear that this was, um, we refer to this (laughs) all the time as what they were trying to do is take the Pope in a box travel that they normally do for their trips and bring it to you know, to Masquechise and to Lac-Saint-Anne in Alberta here for um, for the apology that we were expecting, um, in the same way that they've done every single other trip. And this was not the same kind of trip. This is a very, very different kind of trip. I mean, I am of Roman Catholic background. I went to a Catholic school my entire life. I have a very complicated relationship with that religion. Um, but we knew that there would be lots of polarizing, you know, viewpoints about the pope coming to visit and and what that meant for indigenous people. So it became pretty evident that our team was going to have to play a bigger role in pushing for indigenous people and making sure that our voices were heard and that the you know that the confederacy had. Um, opportunities to speak to the media about what this trip meant, that it wasn't just, you know, dictated by the church and told to them what they were going to say and where they were going to be. So we organized a press conference at the, an international press conference at the beginning of the visit, just so that the chiefs had the opportunity to speak about what this visit meant to them. Um, That was, uh, that was wild, actually. I mean, we did, uh, our, our team put out a, a trauma informed journalism guide, Um, when it became clear that you know we were going to be speaking to media and working with media from all over the world and these were people that really didn't understand the plight of indigenous peoples and the histories of what had happened here in canada and the genocide residential schools history and so you know putting that for at the forefront you know for indigenous people of this visit and then having media come here and wanting to talk to them and pull those stories out like we wanted to be able to give the media a little bit of background and context about who they were interviewing and what that looked like when, um, you know, trauma informed journalism. Um, and so we shared that with the church, and from what I understand, that the church shared that with all of their media representation. It went far and wide. And I want to say that the experience that I witnessed versus what I've seen, you know, in my career in comms, that during that time. Media were super respectful. There was people. There were media um, journalists that offered protocol before they interviewed some of the survivors and some of the chiefs. They their questioning was um, respectful. They were patient when you know. Um, I think at the end it was after Chiefs when we had the apology. There was a bus um assigned to all the journalists and you know the federal government was trying to push them through and told them that if they didn't get on the bus that they if they didn't get on the bus they weren't going to get out of Maskwaciece which is where uh, the apology was being held and we told them that we would make sure that they got back so that they could actually hear from the chiefs so we did a press conference at Maskwaciece as well after the apology and so we held all those journalists back and they stayed with us and I want and it was actually just a really moving experience for me as an Indigenous person, but also as a communicator and just seeing how people were responding um, to the chiefs and the survivors who were speaking. And it was just really it was really moving, actually, to see that there was a shift in how the media were approaching and, and dealing with the stories. So there was there was a level of respect for sure.
0: Couple things that I want, I want you to dig into a little bit here before I go on to my next question is kind of give us a high level of what the apology was about. Um, sure. And then something you and I talked about when we met in Toronto was that you were talking about protocol, that there, there are customs and traditions that, that Indigenous folks do that say, Western journalists aren't aware of and don't understand and the timing of things. Can you speak to that and how um, communicators and and journalists can be respectful of the customs and and traditions when they are working with Indigenous folks?
1: Sure. Yeah. So um, the apology actually came um, as a result of in, in 2015, the federal government had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission who had Ninety? Is it ninety-six? Sorry, ninety-six calls to action. Ninety-six or ninety-four? Sorry, I'm, I should have known that. But um, calls to action about what you know, what Canadians and what corporate Canada could do to um, move towards reconciliation with Indigenous peoples in Canada. And one of the um, one of the actions was an apology from the Roman Catholic Church. And so, in the spring of this year, there was a, a delegation, and I think it was mostly Métis people. But there was a delegation of Métis people that went to the Vatican, and met with the Pope. And he was really—I want to say—he was really affected. It's from what we what we could see that he was really affected by some of the survivors that he talked to. And they asked him, they've, and I guess he's been asked numerous times to come to Canada for the apology. But this time, for some reason, something was different. And he agreed to come and And I think that was in, I want to say that was in March of 2020, 2022. And he was here in July. So that was a pretty quick turnaround for a trip. So there was a lot of, you know, I think they usually plan for those kinds of trips years in advance. Like this was put together in a couple of months. Uh, <clears throat> so it was really, it was a really important healing piece of the truth and reconciliation commissions uh, recommendations and um, in terms of, sorry, the second part that you asked me about was just the protocol piece, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> so in exchange for knowledge from a knowledge keeper and or an elder or survivor, um, it's customary to exchange tobacco and to express gratitude um, for the knowledge that they're sharing with you. And so that's what we saw. We saw there was, you know, some journalists were bringing tobacco and exchanging tobacco um ahead of time with the person that they were interviewing or to say thank you and and in gratitude for the knowledge that was being exchanged and shared
0: big news friends we have found a way to duplicate the content we share so it can be everywhere all at once announcing the dei communications (laughs) Blueprint. It is a three-level on-demand video course. It's 21 of the most popular topics I talk about in workshops and training sessions with clients. So by taking the video course, you will be able to apply a DEI lens to your communications, develop DEI communication strategies, gain more confidence in DEI communications, and shift DEI messaging and narratives to center outcomes, not activities and outputs. Plus, we're throwing in bonuses, webinar replays, so you get fresh, ongoing content. Go to deicommunicationsblueprint.com. That is deicommunicationsblueprint.com to get started. And there's also a timing issue a uh, not, not issue, but there's, there's a timing to the customs of, of there's a saging, there's, there's a process in order to clear the space. And yeah. when, when the elders, the survivors, the, the tribal leaders are ready, that's when you start. It's not on, we're starting at 10 and everyone's going to start at 10. It's like, that's something that, is part of that respect as far as the exchange and, and inter, inter, interacting and interfacing with indigenous folks.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I, you know, that's one of the things that you and I have talked about is since then I've participated in a couple of press conferences um, since then and see, can see that local journalists for sure. I mean, if, if the schedule says, if the media advisory says that the pipe ceremony is at nine o'clock and they don't get finished, on time or they don't get finished on the exact schedule the journalists know that they're waiting they're, they're there for the duration they block their calendars they don't rush it they don't try to push it they know that out of respect for um you know the subjects that they're interviewing or that the, the for the chiefs and council or the survivors that they wait and they they show that respect um i would say that that's very different from in the past uh, they're pushing for the story and telling you I've got a deadline at this time and we got to go and if we miss it so um, that's definite that's a definite shift
0: that's progress that's progress <laughs> yeah showing that kind of you know and people will talk to me of like okay we really we work on inclusion and belonging and I'm like okay well let's let's kind of pause in this belonging thing um, because usually belonging is like I feel like I belong so you should feel like you belong and in this example you just shared, that's the, co- what belonging, you know, has to involve is, is a co-creation of the space. And mm-hmm. so you're seeing that in that example there. So yeah. that's a good thing. And I know that part of the, the Pope visits, uh, there was a lot of protest by uh, indigenous folks talking about rescinding the doctrine of discovery. We don't have to get into that, but there's been updates, uh, since then where mm-hmm. I believe he has. Rescinded the doctrine of discovery, and if you don't know about it, you need to know about it. Yeah, <laughs> it's basically why things happen. It was written when in the 1500s or something. Um, it was just like, yeah, we basically have we have the right to take everything, and we have the right to do all of these things, and you know, take your land, and colonize, and, and all the things. Um, and so, to rescind the, the doctrine of discovery is like I cried, you know. Um, so. Yeah, because that's something Elizabeth and I have in common is that I have Muscogee Nation ancestry. And that's, you know, part of the lens. And I too was not raised in the customs and traditions and the language because my grandmother was um, also in a residential school survivor and that was literally beaten out of her. So she was stoic and quiet and did not share those things in her mind to protect us but we wanted nothing more from her, but to learn about her history and her family. And I've been, since I've been an adult, I've been collecting stories and learning it, you know, seeing our, our, my great grandmother's name on the Dawes act rolls. And, and I have my roll card. It's the only fricking, you know, ethnicity race that I have to prove that I'm a part of with a government ID. Mm-hmm. Um, and, <laughs> and these folks were the first ones here. Uh, so yeah, but I, I'm white presenting as well. I live a white life. I absolutely do. And so this this ongoing battle that I have in my soul, if you will, is a motivating factor for it's among several motivating factors of why I do this work. But it's a lot of internal introspection, where literally half of my family killed the other half of my family. And so this this kind of Reconciliation that I'm constantly moving towards uh, this healing, um, this forgiveness, this um, speaking for my grandmother when she couldn't um, is is part of my motivating factors. Sure. So I would love to hear from you. Your advice to communicators to go like, can you speak to a land acknowledgement? I get this question a lot. That's why I'm giving it to you. Hmm. (laughs) What is a land acknowledgement? What are we solving for with a land acknowledgement? And here's the question I get most often. How do we go beyond the land acknowledgement?
1: The land acknowledgments—they um, also came out of the TRC recommendations, and it was, you know, a call um, for Corporate Canada to recognize, you know, the land that they're living on, the people that that inhabited that land first. Um, and so, it—I it, think it started out with good intentions, but what's happened is it's become, you know, kind of there's not a lot of understanding. People are saying them at the beginning of events, or they're saying them, you know, in meetings or in their organizations but it doesn't have the meaning. They're not taking the time to learn the names. They're not taking time to learn about who they really, you know, have impacted who lived in that, on that, um, land before them. And so land acknowledgements are really, you know, they're a way for indigenous people to connect with each other, to connect with the language, the culture, the land, the people that were there. It's a way for them to also, um, to recognize who was there first, and so I think land acknowledgments, first of all, should never be delivered by an Indigenous person. They should be delivered by settlers. And what we're, what I really have tried to encourage people to do is really take those land acknowledgments, those base here, who was here, um, you know, recognizing you know the the people that were here first, and and taking it one step further. What's your commitment? What's your actual commitment to learning to doing better what in your profession could you do to help further advance um you know in, indigenous peoples um what else could you do what's your commitment and so uh, you know i say this to communicators all the time i place myself at the beginning of our events and i encourage people to think about how they ended up here and what their connection to indigenous peoples are What they want to do, what their commitment of action is.
0: I mean, some of the things I'll just add to your list of ways that people can go beyond the land acknowledgement is hiring Indigenous people, (laughs) like invest in them. And you know, I have yet to really see a successful employee resource group for uh, Indigenous people, and that is because. There we haven't hired them. There's not enough of them. There's less than one percent in most organizations, and that is those who self-identify. Um, right. And so there's this cycle that is occurring here, that we aren't hiring them, but they also need, you know, uh, investments in education, housing, etc. So there's a lot of systemic barriers to get them to the point of. Being a part of your talent pool in some industries. And so we have to, we have to be like kind of follow the money, if you will, and then support those who are there and give them a voice and visibility and, and apply the three C's that I talk about all the time. Celebrate, crisis, and consistency. Mm-hmm. Have employee resource groups have visibility. There is an entire month. In the United yep. States. I, does Canada celebrate Native American Heritage Month in um, November?
1: It's in the month of June, actually. Indigenous. Um, it's National Indigenous Peoples Month. Um, OK. Month. And, yeah,
0: National and we have Indigenous Peoples History Day. Month. That's replacing Columbus Day in October. So that's right. kind of the warm up. But again, consistency. This is something that needs to be talked about at all times uh so there's employing uh, indigenous people um resourcing them working with grassroots organizations there's land back the land back movement um where uh, corporations own land can they you know where can they give land back to the proper original owners there's the land back movement um then there's advisory boards incorpor- you know uh, incorporating people as part of your diversity equity and inclusion committee Bringing in those those folks who lead your uh, you know local tribes et cetera that your company's land is on uh, and you know the customers that you serve and the people that you employ and the land that you're on bringing in um, indigenous folks as part of your advisory board as part of your DEI commitments and your strategies that's absolutely doable for everybody and then hiring indigenous vendors as part of your supplier diversity program being very intentional in working with vendors who are uh, owned you know owned and operated uh, with employees who are of indigenous uh, ancestry and backgrounds so there's so many different ways it's listen pay pay them involve them co-create with them especially around earth day anything you do on your environment a society and governance your ESG reports as far as i'm concerned must include people who are indigenous must they understand how to live one with the land so any ESG policy that does not have any indigenous involvement is going to fail it will it cannot be sustainable because you're not incorporating the people who have thousands and thousands of years Of knowledge and stewardship of how to be sustainable. So you are just completely missing it that you will never, your ESG uh, policy will never, ever be successful without the involvement um, and the payment and the co creation of said policies and programs without Indigenous uh, people. Just, it, it cannot happen. Because there's no way that we we know better than them, you know. (laughs) No way, not at all. Anything you want to add to that? Well, there's something there's
1: something that we say here in Canada. I'm not sure if you say that as well in the U.S., but it's nothing for us without us.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, That came out of the disability movement in the 60s. Yep.
1: Right. Exactly. So um, you know everything that I was just talking last week with. um, someone from the health uh, services industry, and she was talking about, um, you know, they're, they're really struggling to connect with Indigenous communities because they're coming to them with solutions. And I was, you know, I just said to her, I was like, you got to take that back. You got to stop. Mm-hmm. Stop right there. Stop telling them exactly what it is that you want to do for them. Because they may be really good ideas, of course, but Indigenous peoples know, know what they need. They know what their people need. They know what their communities need. And so stop listen, build relationships, take time. You got to build trust. You got to build that trust back and just take time to listen and get to know who they are and what matters to them before you start forcing, um, you know, policies or things that you want to do to help them because they, they know better than anyone.
0: A thousand percent. I just like the point of just like, stop, just stop. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 there's so much I can comment on, on what you just said. (laughs) Stop. Yes. Um, Yeah. So uh, I have two more questions for you. Sure. One is what are some ways that we as internal, external communicators, marketing communications, I'm going to tap into all of your professional experience. um, How do we decolonize our communications what do we need to be mindful of around our strategies, our language, our visual representation, uh, et cetera? So, what are some ways that we can literally decolonize our communications? There is
1: a there is a language that resonates with Indigenous peoples, and I'm, and you know it's just it's subtle changes, um, the order in which you um, you know, even talking about Indigenous peoples, capitalizing Indigenous peoples, never calling them our Indigenous peoples. Um, there are three distinct communities in Canada that make up Indigenous peoples, and that's First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, making sure that you're always including, if you're talking about Indigenous peoples, that you also call out First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. Um, like I said, the subtle language changes. I mean, I can't, there there are a few, I can't think of, a, of any that I'm right now, but representation in your photography, in your marketing, um, very rarely do you see Indigenous peoples, modern day Indigenous peoples doing regular things, going for coffee, having dinner with their family. It's very stereotypical. You see regalia and teepees and smudging. And so look for, I mean, it's, it's difficult. There is a stock photography um, deficit for Indigenous representation for sure. Um, but do your best. I mean, those are, we talk about that in DEI in general is making sure that your, you know, your audience is represented in your, in your marketing images and your stock photography, but, you know, try to, try to look for, try to look for indigenous people. And in modern day representation, there's a lot of kick-ass women entrepreneurs out there right now, indigenous women entrepreneurs are doing really amazing things and highlight them when you can, know their stories, um, Find out what matters. Yeah. I don't know. That's the other yeah, thing. Absolutely.
0: And there's powwows that are open to the public. Yes. And uh, but are. you are a guest. If you're non-Indigenous, you are a guest. And those of us who are not raised in our traditions, like Elizabeth and I, but want to reconnect to that culture and are kind of fumbling our way through without the guidance of our elders. Because my grandmother isn't here anymore. Is yours? No. No. Yeah. So we're kind of fumbling our way through all of this and uh, but there's certain protocols and behavior that we need to respect when we are a guest at powwows. Sometimes it's okay to take pictures and videos and sometimes it's not. It's a sacred, you know, experience that they're doing in a drumming circle, for example. So running around, you know, doing a live Instagram thing is not welcome. So, you know, understanding and kind of following their lead and you are on that you are a guest, but they open up powwows specifically for the public for these reasons, to be invitational, to learn their customs and traditions, and to celebrate them. And so, and I recently did an Instagram uh, and, and a LinkedIn post specifically talking about that, where I was a guest at Juneteenth when I was visiting Nashville. I went right. to a Juneteenth festival and, you know, white women showing up to a Juneteenth festival. I am a guest You know, and everyone should have that experience. Everyone should do this constantly. When we're allowed, when we are invited, um, and, you know, we don't go crash when we're not invited, but, you know, we, we, we do not have the entitlement to go wherever we want in whatever group we want. We do not have that right. That is crossing the line. But when there is an open invitation to be a part of cultural traditions and celebrations, that in ceremonies that we are not culturally tied to, we need to go and learn how to be a guest and um, get to know their their experiences and their lives and their traditions, their language through their eyes. Learn and listen to the stories. And that's one of the, the sweatshirts that I wear um, when I visited the tribal headquarters of the Muskogee Nation in o- Mowgli, uh, Oklahoma. I got myself a, a sweatshirt that on the back of it says, um, we're stir- still here. We're still here. So, yep. you know, talking about your visual representation, the whole idea of just like, you know, things from the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. Um, yes, that's all true, but not as a replacement of, we are still freaking here. You know,
1: <laughs> we, we look
0: different, <laughs> yeah. many yeah. of us. There was interracial marriages, you know, throughout generations, whether and not even interracial, there was obviously a lot of victimization of sexual abuse that that occurred as well. Um, but there is, we, we look different. And many of us are trying to reclaim and get back in touch with something that was taken away from our, our elders, from our ancestors. Um, and, but know that we're here, we're still here. And there's a lot that we have to offer. And so the equity work for communicators is to break down that access, to, to create more access, break down those barriers, bring in the indigenous voice to our communications. Um, and so I can't stress that enough. So my last question for you, Elizabeth, um, after, uh, then we'll, then we'll, we'll wrap up is what is communicating like you give a damn sound like, look like, feel like? when it comes to being representative and respectful of Indigenous people?
1: Hmm. I mean, I think we've talked about this. And just to build on what you're talking about in terms of, you know, our skin colour, I mean, we look very uh, white-presenting. And so when I speak about Indigenous peoples and the plight of my family and you know, when I'm amplifying, helping to amplify Indigenous voices, that matters. Um, We have, we have the channels, we have people that'll listen to us, we've been afforded a certain amount of privilege in our life, um, because of the way that we look. And so it's really important to give um, space and, and time and help amplify those voices of people who don't look like us, who didn't have the opportunity to speak and to help um, you know, further things like this, like representation, being able to talk to other communicators and say, you know, there are subtle things that you could do in your communications um to make sure that those people feel included, that they, that they feel seen. Um It's subtle, but it matters. And so, yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's, that's my jam. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think part of our our personal journey has really been recognizing that our grandmothers, our great grandmothers who did have darker skin tones had a very different life than what we've been afforded here. And so recognizing that privilege and trying to utilize it to give voice to the stories and to create more visibility for those who do have darker skin tones um, and give them power and you know and visibility and voice because they are our partners right now moving forward if we let them and we have to let them we have to but to me it's not an option we have to fold in indigenous folks to lead us in a lot of the work that our companies are doing especially around earth day like i was talking about earlier so -hmm. how can people follow you get in touch with you learn more from you
1: I, so you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I am, uh, sorry, (laughs) Kim, I don't actually have all my stuff set up yet really. So, um, just LinkedIn, I guess. Do you want me to just say that?
0: (laughs) Yeah, sure. Just find me on LinkedIn and spell your last name just because, you know, some people may miss the E. Okay, Sure.
1: Yeah, so you can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, my last name is Bunny, B-U-N-N-E-Y with the E-Y. Lots of people want to say that it's Bunny, but it's actually just Bunny. That's
0: um, kind of cool, though. You got, like, yeah. you know, the French pronunciation. That's, yeah, made up, totally, but okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so you can just find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm pretty active on there, along with my IBC folks and the IBC chapters. Uh, so, that yeah, that's where you can find me.
0: All right. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your personal and your professional experience. The Pope stories were, were, were great. So thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the voice and visibility that you provide. And I wish us both luck as we continue on our own personal journeys. Thanks for being here, Elizabeth.
1: Thank you for having me, Kim.
0: Okay. So what popped out to you from this conversation? And I mean, it may take a minute to process, but be sure not to brush off what you just heard. Look, you just need a partner to be with you through this experience and understand what to do next. So I'm inviting you to set up a one on one strategy session. All you need to do is go to communicate like you give a damn the dot com and you'll see the button there. The more conscious communicators in the world, the better the world. So thank you for listening, and until next time, let's communicate like we give a damn.